So one thing that we found to be true from discussions around the book to how to have uncomfortable conversations around the dinner or holiday tables, all the way to sharing the stories that we are so lucky to be able to do on this podcast. You know what? It all comes back to how this work, which is kind of the hard work of inclusion, anti-racism and how to make lasting change. It has to start first from within. We have to see each other as humans first and find those commonalities so that we can then address our differences. And so with this, we're going to say this very boldly, cancel culture is not working out. We need bridges in order to be able to see the new world we're trying to create. So the skill of looking within, it's something, you know, that we talk about so much with our kids and their learning. And as a side note, who else has heard, you know, the phrase social emotional literacy nonstop, right? Especially since the pandemic started with regard to our kids and their well-being. So maybe it's just me. No, I've heard it. Okay. But, you know, that's with regard to our kids. And it's something that we as adults largely brush to the side as one of those nebulous nice to haves with heavy air quotes. Right. Especially women, right? Women are like, um, I should just collapse. When I'm collapsing, then maybe I'll ask for help and think about my well-being. Right. So that's clearly where we go wrong. We need empathy now more than ever. And today's guest is here to show us how to approach conversations and indeed all the spheres of influence that we each hold with that empathy that we need to make intentional lasting change. There were light bulb moments for both of us throughout this podcast, and we'd love to hear if any came up for you all as well. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Would you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Oh, show. Hey, listeners. My name is Saya. My pronouns are whatever you're feeling in the moment. So there is no way for you to be wrong. He, she, or they do what you will. I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. I run my own practice, Saya B Consulting, because she be what? Consulting. And uh, that is something I started this year, but it's really taken off. And then I've gotten to work with a lot of different organizations from nonprofit, conservation, government agencies, schools. We're doing it all. Anyone can get this work if they want it. But I also represent Ballroom. Ballroom is an underground kind of scene for queer and trans people of color to be celebrated for our beauty and our talents. I walk categories such as runway. Do you walk like a model? Do you look like Naomi Campbell? To And I also walk Vogue Femme, which is a style of dance that is, if anything, really hard on the knees, but it is sickening to watch. I also represent two nonprofit organizations. I'm on the board of directors for Joyous Resistance, which is a LGBTQ youth nonprofit that focuses obviously on LGBTQ youth and mental health. The coolest thing, they just uh, started their mobile clinic. So they just renovated this ambulance that will be traveling around the state of Colorado to kind of uh, serve populations that maybe don't have access to LGBTQ affirming therapy and things of that. And then my other organization is Envision You, which focuses on LGBTQ mental health support focused on substance use um, and abuse, which is, you know, pretty significant in the LGBTQ plus community. And yeah, that's kind of me in a snapshot, but outside of all of that businessy official stuff, you know, I'm also a musician. I'm also a writer. I'm also a video game enthusiast. 
you know, a bomb friend and all of that. So yeah, super excited to be here. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm so excited to connect with you because we first came across each other on a board training session and your energy is incredible. I wish people could see you through this because there is a glow and a humanity around you that I just, I'm very excited to dive into it. The reason I wanted to really talk to you at the beginning was what jumped out at me was this idea of empathy coaching that you do. And more that me, Sasha, and I do in this whole realm, the more that we realize, you know, that in DEI and in particular anti-racism as that sort of slice within it, all of it starts from within, right? From within our humanity. And that was where this empathy jumped out at me. Can you talk to us about the power of empathy and the role that you think empathy plays in DE&I work? Yes. Empathy to me is foundational. It is the bare minimum. If you do not really understand the concept of empathy and have it embedded into your life, I think where people really struggle in this social justice journey, wherever you are in your social justice journey, especially if you're at the early stages, is we are kind of in a society that rewards production. We are in a society that rewards outcomes, right? So we're looking at how effective is it? Is it going to make us money? Is it going to have whatever reach impact, right? It's all kind of, and not to say that this is necessarily a bad thing, but it's all really data driven. But the problem with data is only one part of the story, right? Data should be telling a story, actually. So what is the story behind it? So where I see people really struggle in their social justice journey is, okay, there's a problem. We just need to fix it, right? We just need to get to the action step. I need a roadmap. I need a five-year plan. I need all of these things that I am convinced is going to get me the outcome that I want. And not only give me the outcome that I want, but get it in the most efficient way possible because that's what's rewarded, right? Is not only are you producing, but how fast are you producing? How much are you producing? And empathy and social justice is really, in my opinion, not about that at all. It actually is about... How are we as people connecting to one another? How are we connecting to ourselves? How are we understanding the world around us? There's actually a lot of sociology that goes into this work. And even if it's not social justice, right? Even if you're just in your organization and you want to make sure that your employees are satisfied, you want to make sure that you're getting the best work from them, the most effective work from them, that's only going to come if they are also able to take care of themselves. You are taking care of yourself. All of those things are super important. And really, instead of focusing on action, what I want people to focus on is how are you challenging your mental Right? How are you challenging the way that you understand these concepts? How are you challenging the way that you see the world um, and really having an impact on our culture as a whole rather than what I call kind of duct tape fixing? We're just going to throw some duct tape on there. It'll be fine. It's fast. It's efficient. It's strong. Right. And then we freak out when it explodes. Right or it falls apart. So for me, empathy is really the foundation of anything that you want to do in social justice work. And what I found in doing my empathy coaching is a lot of leaders, right? We've been conditioned to fall into this pattern of I'm going to just neglect my own needs and really go for the needs of the company for the organization as a whole, right? I'm post, I'm salaried, I'm spending 40 hours a week, but oftentimes people go way above and beyond 40 hours a week. They're spending 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week. That's no extra pay. And then we wonder why people get burnt out. We wonder why people get tired, especially when we're not seeing the results come the way that we want them to come because 
people are unpredictable. This world is super unpredictable, right? And so for me, what I've seen in my empathy coaching is leaders actually reconnecting to themselves and their lives. And I don't think people realize how disconnected we really are from ourselves and our values and what fuels us and what drives us to do any type of work. And when we can have compassion for ourselves, we now understand what compassion can look like and we can actually spread that to other people, right? I've had leaders talk about they couldn't really focus on this project that really needed to get done. There was a deadline coming up, right? And they decided that since they couldn't focus, that they just needed to go spend time with their friends. They just needed to, you know, unwind, right? And when a leader is able to do that, that grants permission for other folks to be able to do that as well, right? And we're really getting in touch with each other's needs. And that's really where I try to get organizations to focus is what are the needs of the people in your organization? Where are the needs of your community? And focus around that, which to me is very empathy focused and empathy driven versus, oh, we have a problem with racism. Let's just do something and hope for the best, right? But when you're doing it in a needs-based way, I feel like you see more results and more impact because you're connecting more. And one of the things that jumped out at me when you said that about we give everything else, I mean, I was like, that's a mother thing too, right? Like a lot of the moms I know are like, I will give everything to my family before I meet my needs. And personally, I'll admit that I've struggled with that in the past. Like that's why I have the I am enough as a phrase, like all over my office being like, my needs are enough. I often find that people who struggle to ask for help, right? Like I'll ask for help when I'm just about to basically collapse. I'm really working on asking for help and holding my boundaries so that I can remain like a full bucket before I'm totally depleted. But it's almost like the sense of, I don't deserve to feel good all the time because I have to give everything away. Have you come across that in your work and how do you help people feel like their needs are valid. Well, first of all, I will say that that is me. <laughs> Literally, that is me. I am a person who I am absolutely garbage at asking for help. I'm really terrible at it. And I think for me, a lot of that just comes from I'm an only child raised by a single mother who was also working to support an only child. Right. So I spent a lot of time by myself. I and then also with my just my identities, right, being queer, eventually coming out as non-binary, figuring all these things out, I had a lot less support in a lot of different areas, right? I had a lot of less access to a lot of help and support that I didn't even realize was possible for me. So I think one thing is everyone has a different story around how they appear in relationships and what relationships have look like for them. I know a lot of folks, especially folks who, as you said, mom, right? A lot of my female clients, women identified clients who they tend to have a lot of, they tend to value relationships more, right? There's a, when I ask what parts of your identity are most important to you, it's always, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I am these different things for other people. And then to a point where we almost lose sight of ourselves, and who we are and who we need. And that's one of the things that I do work with my clients from the jump, right? From the start, we're talking about self-care. We are talking about prioritizing your needs. We are talking about boundaries. We are talking about all of those things on the front side of things, because I need you to be able to know how to take care of yourself when things start to hit the fan, 
because right now it's smooth sailing. But as soon as that microaggression comes in, as soon as the guilt comes in, as soon as the fragility comes in, it's a whole other conversation. And if you don't have the skills or understand what you need as a person, you're really going to burn out quickly, which is, I feel like what we see with these flashpoints that happen. For example, George Floyd happens and there's this huge eruption of, oh, we need to do better. Things are so unjust. Things are this, that, and the third. Here we are a little year later and no one is having that same conversation because Everyone threw all of their energy at once. No one ever stopped to think about what does community care look like? Um, And now we're all burnt out and white folks are tired of hearing the conversations. We're tired of feeling guilty. We're tired of feeling all of these things, right? But the issue has still never gone away, right? And I think that speaks to that empathy piece, right? That connection piece of who are we really doing this for? We'll come back to that if we need to, the gag. But yes, prioritizing your own needs and really having a foundational understanding of that is actually really foundational because again if i and what people realize is oh i have no idea what my needs are (laughs) right i send them home to go do this needs assessment homework and they're like i actually don't even know where to start and it's almost how do you expect other people to advocate for themselves if you can't even advocate for you but i think it's really important for folks to really take that time to spend time with yourself spend quality time with yourself and really get a chance to understand yourself for me that's something that i had a lot of time to do as an only child and i kind of had to with my identities i had to figure out what i stand for what's important to me what makes me feel good what makes me feel valid and also to your point of boundary setting sometimes that means physical boundaries from people that make you feel inferior people who are just taking from your cup and never refilling it right and understanding That doesn't make you an evil person. I think there's some guilt that comes along with saying no. I think there's some guilt that comes along with not being able to give energy you don't have. But this idea that makes us terrible people or selfish people is really harmful, actually, because these internal needs and these self-fulfilling needs are they're almost a requirement for just our existence, right, For for the betterment of our mental health. So I think that's the point that I spend a lot of time with clients on is understanding that, no, you deserve these things. And when they actually listen to me and do their homework, (laughs) right, then they come back and they're like, you know, I didn't do anything over the weekend, which is not my normal. And here I am rested and I feel ready to focus and ready to go because they've actually given their mind a break. (laughs) Right. You deserve these breaks, but society doesn't like to give them to us. I love so much about that because I think there is like so many levels of intentionality and also sort of really looking and examining yourself, which is really difficult for a lot of people, myself included, to do in an honest way as well. So that's something I'm going to really be thinking about, too, is, you know, hearing what how you talk to people about this. You know, I wanted to ask about empathy post-COVID or like sort of post this, you know, the COVID shutdown, because I was listening to this podcast today and it was talking about how kids in school have missed sort of our year and a half behind in social emotional learning. And they were talking about very specific examples of, you know, telling kids, okay, we're going to get this project together. We're going to do it here, all the pre-work we're going to do. And the teacher turned around and these kids are just standing there because they have no idea how to collaborate or how to work with each other. And then I look at adults, you know, coming sort of in re-entering society in the same way and wondering about like, did we lose a lot of that empathy? And, you know, maybe we used it all up to your point in those bursts of, you know, really like these June 2020, everything, everyone poured out all of their, you know, emotions. And then suddenly 
had no way to rebuild those. So when you go into companies and you talk about empathy, like, do you find that there are resistance points to people saying like, why is, you know, just having this 18 months of not being able to be empathetic in the same way together? Or, you know, what are those resistance points that you hear? And how do you address those? Because I'm sure that you must come up against this, you know, a fair amount. I think you bring up an excellent point around this isolation, right? And to be clear, not everybody was isolating during this quarantine. So there's that. But anyway, if you were isolating, or even if it wasn't necessarily consistent, right, there's still going to be a lot of alone time. There's a lot of time just at the house. There's a lot of time not having a routine kind of situation, right? It's not like you're going into the office every single day and you're getting your daily dose of extroversion, if that's something that's important to you and things like that. You're not necessarily running across strangers the way that we used to. And depending on how seriously you're taking COVID, right? The way that you interact with people is significantly different. And that's very isolating. I think what a lot of people, and I'm speaking from my experience and hoping people that can resonate with it, right, is I experienced a lot of isolation. And especially when George Floyd and everything happened, I wasn't trying to go nowhere as a Black person. I'm like, I ain't trying to go to the stove. I ain't trying to go get food. I'm not trying to go to the park. I ain't trying to walk around. I just want to be at the house. And that can take a serious toll on your mental health. The problem being, most people in this world, as we just talked about, have no idea how to cope with things. They have no idea how to take the time to do self-reflection. They have no tools on really understanding what's coming up for me as I'm sitting in this house all day and my husband or spouse is getting on my nerves and I got to watch my kids and I got to do all these things, right? And I still don't have time for me. So you don't even have time to process. Not, and then you don't even have the tools to process. And so when we are not able to cope, right, and we maybe it feels even harder to cope, then what's easier, the easiest thing to do is avoid. And how easy that to do, especially nowadays, when you can just get on TikTok and scroll for hours, right? You can just get on your podcast and just listen to podcasts for hours. You can do so many things that are a form of like escapism. And escapism isn't necessarily a bad thing when used as a coping mechanism, but when that's all you have and you're actually using that as a way to avoid your issues, your traumas that may be coming back up, things that are really serious, right? It's hard to dive into those. And so we choose to escape rather than work on ourselves. And then on top of that, because of the isolation and we're not working on ourselves, when we do re-enter public spaces, we don't know how to act. So I do think that there's a little bit of awkwardness <laughs> that is going to come along with people re-entering society. And also there's been this political divide that we need to like acknowledge as well around just the use of masks and vaccines, right? And although these should be health-related issues that should be focused just on that, they turn into political issues because of our society and how it's functions. So wearing a mask, or not wearing a mask is equated with being either a good or a bad person, depending on what side of the fence you're on. Um, and so now we're, some people are looking at masks to be like, oh, so you don't care about my children? Or they're looking at your mask and saying, oh, you a clone, you a slave, what's going on here, right? And all of those are created to continue to divide us and keep us disconnected, which is super unfortunate. So there's that piece to it. And uh, remind me of the kind of latter part of your question when I'm going into clients with empathy, my, oh, what resistance, right? Honestly, I don't know if the resistance is, I think part of it is 
when people opt into my services, I'm getting my clients, right? I'm getting, and I, as the saying goes, not everybody is your client. And that's just the truth, right? I work with people who I say that if you can't, if, I, if we're using the metaphor of like a journey and you are starting inside your house on this journey, you've been closed off from the world, you've been closed off from social justice. If you are not even willing to open the door and take a foot outside, I don't know what we can do together, right? Because I am that next level, all right? I'm here to get you to the next part of that journey, regardless of where you are, right? And you need to be open to that. So I think a people who opt into my services and aren't necessarily, quote, required to be there, they're already kind of invested. They're already kind of bought in. And then they come in, meet me and my energy, and it's a wrap. Cool. So I think the biggest point of resistance is, A, getting people in the room. And I think that has, there's actually a lot of barriers there when it comes to, we've been in this virtual world for a year and a half, almost two years, and people are zoomed out. People are over it. People are tired. People want to do things in person. And that is real. (laughs) And it's really hard to kind of get the same energy that you would get from an in-person collaboration or even like a virtual conference is very different than going to an actual conference where you're there's all these opportunities to connect with folks and share meals and go for a walk and see the city that you're in and all these other experiences that we're kind of missing out on. So I think people are kind of burnt out from Zoom in general. So I think that's one big restriction. But I think where the resistance really comes from is I think a lot of DEI trainings or workshops can feel a little shame oriented. And what we know about shame is that it doesn't do anything but make people feel terrible. It doesn't really promote growth. It doesn't really help people learn. It doesn't really do any of that. If that was true, the prison system would not be profiting like it is, but that's a whole other podcast. There's something to be said about, I think people don't want to, I think people are afraid that if they enter a DEI space or they're going to a social justice training, that it's going to be this shame-oriented session where I'm going to feel bad as a white person. And it's like, oh, no, the guilt is not coming from me. The guilt is coming from you, your internal stuff, right? That we can talk through, we can work through it. And so I think that is a part of resistance people have. Some people do come in kind of defensive. I tend to be pretty good at disarming folks. One of my strategies is I don't say we don't, racism isn't the first thing we're talking about, right? We're going to actually talk about some of these foundational human concepts, such as empathy, such as constructs, such as these things that are fundamental to the process that people don't necessarily have a good foundation in. So that way, when we do get to racism, it doesn't feel like, oh, dang, I am the person. I am a terrible person. It's no, this is an actual issue and you're connected to it, right? You are a part of this right? And you are a part of the solution. So what does that look like? And so we're bringing those folks in, but there definitely is a little resistance to entering a DEI space. And I don't know if that has to do with necessarily COVID as much as it has to do with people are burnt out from DEI in general and trying to get people to kind of buy into it. It can be a little wonky. As I try to say, as I can't make someone care about other people, that's not really my job (laughs) because that's a whole, you need therapy for that. But yeah. No, that's true. And I like you said that, right? Because you can't make people care about other people. But if enough of us who do care about other people actually go on and speak up about it more loudly than those who are trying to hate on each other, then we can shift the balance of hopefully this conversation, I think, a little bit more. You know, I already thought about the list of questions that you asked early on. And I love this idea of foundation setting as individuals looking at stuff like, what are my needs and what are my boundaries? like, I'm already like, okay, we'll have like a whole set of memes because people need to have like a little cheat sheet and a workshop of these questions. I need them to reset as we're reemerging. And then the holidays are here and like all of this stuff is happening. But in addition to the foundation of 
the ability to understand ourselves, right? And have empathy for ourselves. What are other, like maybe one or two other empathy skills that you think that, can you teach us? Like, what are things that you think we all need to know about this work? Oh my goodness, two things. Let me see. So what are you saying that you want two skills on how to empathize with yourself or how to empathize with other people? How about we do one each? Ooh, that's what I was thinking, but I'm glad you said it. So there's a, don't nobody steal my stuff. Okay, first of all, y'all listening. Intellectual property to Saya. To the podcast. I need credit, okay? Put my name on the presentation, whatever the T is. But I've been kind of working on this kind of concept that I call identity-based self-care. Cool. So what happened? I won't give you the activity because then you really gonna steal it. But what I do is I have people reflect upon their identities and figure out what are the things that are most important to you. And then I kind of threaten those identities a little bit through this activity that I like to do. And the root of that is there's a lot of things actually comes up out of that, right? People are realizing, oh my goodness, I care more about these identities than I thought. Or, wow, when I actually take the time to think about myself, my identities, there's so much that comes up for me and so much, these things mean so much more to me than I realize. Because sometimes we don't know what we have until it's gone, right? And so we are so disconnected and we're so hustle and bustle that we forget that there are things that actually fuel us and makes us feel good and that are kind of fundamental to our being. The other thing that I notice, right, is folks who have more marginalized identities are more likely to list those identities as some of their most important identities to them, right? Whereas folks with more privileged identities actually dive more into what I call, right, our personal identities, the things that we kind of get to decide upon uh, or our life circumstances put us in, right? So our birth order, our hobbies, our occupation, our dreams, our adjectives that we would use for ourselves, those kind of take more precedent. And I started realizing that that is a form of privilege in itself, that you don't have to think about your social identities as much because they're not really threatened in any way, usually, right? Versus for me, I'm putting that I'm a Black, queer, non-binary, X, Y, and Z, not just because those are just my social identities, but because I had to fight for these things, right? We lost friends, we lost family, we lost all these different things that is almost like, how would I ever let this part of myself go when it's something that I fought so hard for? I mean, it's something that's constantly on my brain, right? But that also leaves less room for me to think about my identity as a musician. That leaves less room for me to think about my identity as a gamer, as a social person, as uh, someone in the Vogue community, right? I don't necessarily have the agency to think about those all the time, right? And that's just a disadvantage. So anyway, this whole idea of identity-based self-care is, okay, if we're saying that these are the identities that are most important to you and you're understanding and connected to why, then how do you take care of that identity, right? It's kind of reframing this idea of self-care. I think when we talk about self-care, people want to think super expensive, right? I'm going to go to the spa. I'm going to go on a shopping spree. I'm going to go on vacation. Everybody can't do that, right? So the question becomes, how do you take care of your identity in just that, right? So if you, and I think I've saved some marriages, to be quite honest. Some people owe me a little extra fee. But like, for example, I've had clients for who, for them, what's very important to them is their spousehood, right? The fact they are a husband or a wife. And I've had husbands go back for their homework. They're taking care of their identity as a husband. They're taking care of their identity as a mother, whatever that is. 
And that is go and spend time with that person. Like go figure out what they need. Go set up a cute date situation that y'all haven't done in years, right? And then they come back and they're like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I was missing out on all these X, Y, and Z things, right? Because we get so involved in this capitalist society and just kind of getting things done that we forgot to live. You know, went and got the education, went and got the house, went and got the kids, went and got the spouse, went and got the perfect job with the perfect money. And yet you ain't doing nothing with none of it. You just still going to work. And then by the time you get home, you're too tired to do anything, right? We are so disconnected from ourselves in that way. So that's my skill that I would teach everyone around empathy for yourself is actually figure out, even if, especially if you struggle with how do I take care of myself, go back to your identities, right? And it doesn't really matter what it is. What does matter is how important is it to you and figuring out how do you honor that part of yourself? So again, if it's relationships, spend time with those people, get a gift, do something, call them up on the phone. If it's a hobby, make time for that hobby, like more than you actually would. So if you only typically do your hobby, like 30 minutes out the week, I need you to increase it to an hour and really dedicate a time and space for that, right? If it is something around your social identities, I want you to dive in and do some research. I want you to like do some research on your identity, find more about yourself, listen to artists, listen to authors, listen, find the media sources for you, go to an event that is made for your people. So that way you're kind of, you're really honoring those parts of yourself and what you'll find hopefully is that there is rest that comes with that. There's fuel that comes with that um, and joy that is going to fuel you to continue on to do your work. The other side, if you are trying to empathize with other folks, the number one thing that we are really terrible at as people is listening. I know some people are rolling their eyes right now and that is totally fine because you still don't know how to listen. (laughs) And that's the gag. We want listening to kind of be this really simple thing that anyone can do, which anyone can But what most folks are doing is they're listening to respond. They're not listening to understand, right? And empathy, in my view, and I think other folks would agree with me, right? My view of empathy is not necessarily about what you're feeling at all. This is when I say empaths aren't necessarily practicing empathy, right? Because what can happen is you feel so much for the other person, but then you project that experience onto them. So now it's not their experience, it's yours. And you're not really listening, right? Um, That happens to me a lot. I think people project a lot onto me sometimes where I'm like, I say something and all of a sudden they take it a certain way that they would normally take in. I'm like, "Uh, no, actually there's more to the story. I'm not one dimensional. I have my own context. I have my own reasons for things. And so for me, empathy is about how do you let go of what you believe? How do you let go of your values? How do you let go of what you think is right and wrong, right? Not in the sense that you're going to agree with the other person. That's not what it's about, but it's to understand as deeply as possible how this other person is perceiving the world, right? You need to understand it from their perspective. Otherwise, we look at people and just say that they're crazy. We just say, how dare you go around walking around with no mask on and da 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 And I'm not here to say here which one is right or not. I'm just saying, what would it be like if we slowed down and actually stop to think about the other person where they're coming from. So that way, when we do respond, we have a response that makes sense, right? We have a response that actually gets us to where we want people to be. That's a lot of my work, right? If I walk into a workshop and I am filled in, you know, a predominantly white space, there's no Black folks in the room, right? 
and maybe folks are already resistant to DEI work. If I come in guns blazing and I'm just like thinking that these are terrible people, then I result to shame-based tactics where I'm just trying to make you feel as bad as possible in the hopes that you're going to do something. And the way that I like to go about it actually is I want to make room for you to kind of tell me a little bit about where you're coming from. I'm trying to learn your upbringing. I'm trying to learn uh, what's important to you. So that way, when I'm trying to connect the material to you, it's relevant. It makes sense. It's something that you can connect to and then hopefully change your perspective on, hopefully, right? That's always the goal. So my number one strategy is not a secret. It's not, not, not made up. It is a basic kind of counseling technique called mirroring, right? And in mirroring, what you want to do is you want to replicate what the person has already said to you. You want to then ask if you got it correct. Because <laughs> that's the other thing. Sometimes we think we understood what someone said, but then we repeat it back to them and we ask, is that right? They have an opportunity to say, actually, you got some of those facts wrong. Or they even get to hear themselves and they get a chance to clarify. And then lastly, you ask, is there more? Did I miss anything? Or maybe there was something that came up for you. And what some of my clients have realized in doing that practice is you mirror someone and then they hear something that you said and they're like, oh, wait, I forgot about this detail. That's actually really important, right? And what we're doing is we're providing space for this person not to feel judged, for this person to feel validated in their experience rather you know again it's not about do we agree with it or not but they feel understood and i think a lot of folks are walking around the world feeling misunderstood and when you feel misunderstood you're already going to be on the defense so for me mirroring is a very important practice so in getting used to it and getting good at it and knowing how to do it in a way that doesn't feel patronizing in a way that feels connecting can be really really important but I think that's a big thing when I'm walking in with clients or anything like that. I'm doing like a group facilitation, for example, that's affinity based and it's BIPOC folks. Sometimes people start crying in the first five minutes because I restated something they said and they're like, oh, my goodness, that's the first time I've ever felt heard in my professional career. No one else is taking the time to listen to me. Right. And so that will open up so many other opportunities for growth between like just in your own relationships, but also for your organization as a whole, if that's something that you know, is a part of your life. So yeah, identity-based self-care, take care of yourselves, literally put it in your calendar. It's sacred, right? And practice really actively listening to other people and feeling connected to what other people are saying, whether you agree with it or not, right? (laughs) Take those emotions we can deal with later, but let's start with the basics. Let's start with the foundations. I appreciate both of those so much. And this idea of breaking it down into identity feels so much more rewarding an individual than the blanket self-care that we do typically hear about, right? And so as you were saying that I even thought about my identity as a Japanese person, and I had this whole epiphany earlier this year about how my biracial identity plays into me. And I'm like, oh, what could I do to nourish that more intentionally throughout the year? So I really appreciate that perspective. I've never heard that before. And I think it could be really, really nurturing. So that's brilliant. See, I need to get this copyrighted. Yo, I'm playing games. Yeah, no, I, I'm like, what is that activity? I want to do this activity. So it sounds amazing. Also, I think that description of active listening was one of the best I've heard because it's something that Sarah and I have talked a lot about because as a lawyer, you're really trained to you know, have that rebuttal right in your head while you're kind of like hearing what someone's saying, but you're not actually listening. And so it's been a journey for me to really be an active listener because you do 
I mean, the shift in mindset for the listener, but the shift in the mindset or how the speaker perceives you then and that connection that you're able to build is so, so powerful. So I loved what you said about that. Speaking of understanding, one of the things that I wanted to take an opportunity to ask you, since you brought up this idea of any pronoun that people are comfortable with, and you know, we are big on pronouns. We encourage people to include their pronouns on their emails, for example, But one of the things that I wanted to dive into was how, not only is it obviously important because it's part of validating a person's experience and how they want to be seen by the world, but what is something that you wish people understood about this experience that you have, which is he, she, they pronouns? I throw a lot of people off. I make a lot of people like really self-conscious, I think sometimes. I've had people actually, when I was in grad school, come up to me and say, because that's when I really started. And to be quite honest, it took me a while to get to figure out how I wanted to introduce my pronouns, because I used to say, I don't even remember. It was like a so long winded because I felt like I needed to give this huge explanation about it. I was like, my pronouns are he, she, they. I use them interchangeably. It was like a whole long winded thing that I was like, uh, uh-uh. OK, long story short. My pronouns and my gender identity is still kind of a mess. I'm just out here existing. Non-binary kind of made most sense to me. But at the same time, for me, my pronouns, the reason why I give people kind of choice is for a plethora of reasons. One, I don't want to do it. (laughs) I just don't even want to deal with it, right? So I'm like, how about y'all just project whatever y'all are feeling onto me? That's fine. It doesn't impact me in such a huge way. And at the same time, right, there's something that uh, is called the platinum rule, right? A lot of people are have heard of like the golden rule, treat us the way that you want to be treated, which you know, I guess. But the problem that I have with that is, again, you're projecting your experiences onto other folks, right? You're assuming that your version of respect is the same as another person's version of respect. Your version of love is the same as another person's version of love. Um, And that is not always the case. So Platinum Rule says to treat other people the way that they want to be treated, right? Now, a lot of folks may be saying, well, how on earth am I supposed to know what other people want, other people need, other people da 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 Well... It means that you then have to go out of your way. You have to go talk to these folks. You actually have to build a relationship with each other. You actually have to learn and remember what you learned about folks so that way you can apply it to each individual situation, right? And you're going to be asking these questions all the time because we don't know each other that well. And we're humans. We're going to mess up. It's real. Get over it, right? And so anyway, when it comes to pronouns, that's actually really, really important. It's not about what makes you as a speaker feel comfortable. It's about validating the experiences of the people that you're talking to, showing empathy for the people that you're talking to, and that you see them how they see themselves, because that is what's affirming. So I know for myself, I use any pronouns. It's And there are other folks that definitely use any pronouns at any time, but there are folks with he, she, they pronouns that it changes on the day, right? I used to have, when I was an intern in undergrad, I had a student that would wear a colored wristband and that if it was blue, you use he, them. I mean, he, they. If it was pink, you use she, hers, right? And that's how they would signify, right? Everyone has their own different method of what feels good and what uh, works for them. And those things should all be respected. But I think pronouns gets so conflated with a lot of different other issues that we don't really even think about or talk about. First of all, pronouns aren't political. They're grammatical, first of all. <laughs> okay, sometimes when I when someone asks me to do a, a training on pronouns, I'm like, oh, so you want me to take y'all back to second grade? No shade. 
But that's kind of what it feels like, right? It's like, these are things that we use all the time. And it really grinds my gears when I hear people say things like, I don't have a pronoun. And it's like, that's just not how English works. So you do have one. You just never are using it for yourself. It's really for other people. And I think the other thing with that too is, it's not necessarily even getting the pronouns right in front of the person. Because a lot of times when we're speaking about someone in third person, that person is not even present, right? The real test comes when they're not there. So that's important to think about as well. And I think the part that people miss out on or don't really fully understand the gravity of is that there's a life-threatening component that comes along with misgendering someone, right? So if someone is a trans woman, but you publicly refer to them as a man or refer to them with he, him pronouns, you're actually, you could be risking that person's life because again, pronouns have become political. So there are people that they just see that and they say, oh my goodness, there's a such and such in the room. And that could be life-threatening. People have literally lost their lives from being misgendered in real life uh, because people think that they're trying to trick them or people think a whole bunch of uh, ridiculous nonsense. That actually ends up with trans, especially Black trans women, dying at a significantly higher rates. So when we're talking about pronouns and why you put your pronouns on your website, why it's in your bio, why it's in your email signature, it's beyond just this performative act of placing them there. I also need you to understand that you are almost claiming to be a support system for the LGBTQ plus community and that anyone should be able to talk to you about their pronouns and that and with the expectation that you are going to respect it at your best possible level. You're going to give, of course, we all make mistakes. I definitely still misgender people, people in the queer community misgender people all the time. It's not necessarily about getting it right 100% of the time. It's about the effort. It's about the empathy and about why this is so important. So yes, when it comes to my pronouns, though, people have done a lot. <laughs> One of my favorites is when people will use different pronouns within the same sentence. So they'll be like, oh, well, you know, Sai, he just got back into town and she is going to come in and do da 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 and they will vote, right? And I'm like, oh, that's cute, right? Because this is all a construct. And I kind of like that people can have fun with it. And at the same time, it's also very interesting because most people default to he and just kind of ignore all the other options, which to me, as a kind of psychology really framed person, I just find it very interesting. I find it, okay, that's interesting. And then if I do something like bring wear a heel, for example, all of a sudden it's like, what pronoun should I use for you again? I'm like, whichever, choose, <laughs> pick one, right? Now you see why I didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's kind of my rundown on pronouns. I've also heard, you talked about pronouns being a, like part of grammar, right? And I have heard two things that I've been mulling over because I was blown away by my Canadian judge friend who told me that in the Canadian justice system, they are now requiring that the lawyers stand up, use their pronouns and introduce the pronouns of everyone sitting at their table, which I think is incredible that it's institutionalized because on one hand, it like validates the need to recognize people the way they want to be recognized. And at the same time, I heard in a random conversation in an airport, someone saying, I don't like that you're forcing people to acknowledge pronouns. And they said that they didn't use pronouns, right? They were like, you know, I don't prefer any pronouns. And I was just like, oh, that's fascinating. I don't know. I wanted to be really in favor of institutionalizing the respect of honoring how people want to be referred to. So that was one point. And then the second point was on the grammar side of things, some people have stumbled across this idea of they because it's plural and grammatically it doesn't flow. And I've heard, is it Z or Zo? There's a lot of neo pronouns. So where does that land for you? 
So I'll start with the first part, right? This institutionalization of pronouns. And I think that's something that's definitely gained traction over the years. When I was at University of Denver, for example, that was a standard practice in every single class that we started in, everyone had to say their pronouns. And there's a lot there. When you institutionalize anything, there's going to be pushback. There's going to be a lot that comes along with it just because an institutionalized thing kind of makes it definite, right? There's almost this power over you where it's like, I'm being forced to do something even though it may be for a good reason. That's why we see a whole bunch of people being resistant to wearing masks in public, for example, being resistant to getting the vaccine because they feel forced to get one, even though you might be being kind of forced or kind of promoted to because it's for the welfare of other folks, right? That goes back to the empathy component. Yeah, I can go back and listen to part one of this podcast, right? Listen, platinum rule, right? But when it comes to that, there's a few parts to that, right? So there, you have this person saying, and I think, we need to clarify what people are saying, right? If you're saying that you don't have pronouns, are you, do you mean that? Or are you actually saying people should be able to look at my gender expression and assume what my pronouns are? Because that is the way that we've been socialized in society, right? When we're talking about gender identity, biological sex, and sexual orientation, none of those, except for maybe biological sex sometimes, none of those are physical characteristics. And the reason I say biological sex sometimes is because we're not walking around naked, right? We're not looking at each other's genitalia, right? So for the most part, these are all invisible identities, the only thing that's visible is gender expression, right? The clothes that we choose to wear, our mannerism, our tone of voice, the activities that we participate in, the way we express ourselves. That is the only thing that you can see. So what people tend to do is we look at gender expression as a proxy for the other three. So based on your gender expression, I'm assuming your biological sex, your sexual orientation, and your gender identity. I'm assuming all of that in one go to say, okay, you're dressed masculinely, so you must prefer he, him pronouns. That's how I'm going to refer to you, right? And I think some people are almost even scared of the idea that I can't just look at someone and just know their pronouns and just say, oh, right now I'm going to get backlash if I get it wrong and this, that, and the third, because we're afraid to ask people about their experience. So I think that's one thing, right? So I think when people are saying they don't have pronouns, they, they have pronouns. Again, it's politicized. They don't believe that pronouns is something that should be determined by someone saying what they are. It should be determined by your biological sex, which actually you can't even see. Huh? The other part of that too is there's, I've heard the comment that it can be sometimes harmful for folks to be forced to get pronouns because in essence, you kind of are setting up a situation where someone might have to come out. So you may, right? So it gets to this person who may be in the closet or maybe hasn't figured out their identity. And now they kind of feel pressured to say something. So do I honor my identity and take a huge risk of coming out in this space where maybe I don't feel safe? It can be a really tough decision. Um, and it can, or do I just go with the flow and go with what people would expect me to say so that I feel safer? But at the same time, I'm now dishonoring my identity. And so I think that is a valid point. And that's something that I definitely consider. I am in favor of pronouns being institutionalized, but optional. You know what I'm saying? Like if everyone is going around saying their pronouns, but when we get to you and you don't want to introduce yourself with your pronouns, then okay, if that's what is important to you and that it makes you feel good, I'm not going to be mad at you because my goal is more so for folks who do get misgendered constantly to have that opportunity to, to advocate for themselves and say, actually, these are my pronouns. And if you do not respect these pronouns, there's going to be an issue, right? To me, that's what institutionalizing should look like. But 
child, it gets complicated when you were talking about the American public. Now, when we were talking about your second question around, what was the second question? The they, them versus some of the, and the grammar that some people. Uh, people are tire me out. And I'm like, just say they, them. And I'm like, come on. Some people <laughs> want to be mad about something. That's to me is what it comes down to. People love being mad about stuff because first of all, when we're talking about constructs, constructs are anything that we may experience as people, but in the grand scheme of life, aren't objectively true, right? So the concept of love, for example, is one that I really love people to talk about, right? My statistics professor asked a question to all of us and said, how do you know your partner loves you? How do you measure that? right? And you can stop and think about all the ways, right? My partner brings me a cup of coffee in the morning and my breakfast is already made. And so I use say, oh, okay. So if I came into your house and I made you coffee and I made you your favorite breakfast, does that mean you're going to love me like your romantic partner? And people are of course like, no, it's not the same, right? There's more to it. And I'm like, okay, but you didn't say that. You said that, you know, your partner loves you from the coffee, Right. But that's because this concept of love or this construct of love is something that we deeply experience. And it's really hard to explain because it's super ambiguous, right? There are emotions that go into it. There's a history that goes into it. And right, and all of that goes into this construct of love, uh, but we kind of use it generally, right? Same thing when it comes to things like language, right? Language is a construct that we use in order to be better able to communicate effectively with one another, right? We come up with words for things so that way we don't have to spend all day trying to describe it, right? That's where uh, people are always like, well, I don't understand why there are so many identities in the LGBTQ spectrum. Well, that's because there are so many people with all these different types of experiences and we're trying to capture it for everybody. So that way I don't have to go around saying, well, you know, it takes me, I like quality time. I like to kind of figure you out. I like to be emotionally connected to you. I can just say I am demisexual. And if you know what that term is, we can move forward. Now, the thing with that is language changes over time, right? We're not speaking the same type of English folks were speaking in 1000 BC, right? We're not even from 1700s, right? AD, whatever the acronyms are, I forget. I ain't been in school in a minute. So it may change, child, the construct. But, right, language changes over time. And so language is meant to us as humans and our experiences to give us a better way to communicate with one another. I don't know that language is necessarily supposed to stay so rigid. And because language is such a construct and changes over time, even this construct of they, them, and how it's supposed to be used as a singular, as a plural, that has been inconsistent throughout history, right? We have um, historical landmarkers that say, or projects where they is used in a singular tense, but it seems like academically people want to use he or she, right? And to that point, sometimes we can even catch ourselves using they as a singular pronoun. For example, if you don't know the gender of the doctor, you're more likely to say, I am going to this doctor or physician and they are going to give me, you know, a certain treatment, right? So it really, again, for me, it, it feels very politicized. It feels very, oh, you're on that side of the issue. Well, I'm not going to give y'all that because of X, Y, and Z reasons that are honestly most likely nonsense. And also, you know, again, this is when I say I can't make people care about other people, right? So if for you, the grammar is more important than someone's life, I don't know how to argue with you on that. <laughs> I just don't know how to argue with you on that, right? If you're saying that you care more about the sentence structure, than you care about validating people's experiences, 
then okay good for you i guess i don't know what to tell you right we are not going to be running in the same circles but that's that piece of you have to have some level of empathy for others in order to even be open to the idea of what if we change the way that we use they them right if it is the case that it has to be plural okay well what if it doesn't what if we decide to change the rules on that as a society and just get aboard with that, right? Then we have changed the construct of the English language. And from now on, they, them as a singular pronoun and can probably use as a plural pronoun as well. Why can't it be both? So I think that is something that we as a society are going to eventually have to reconcile on. But again, to me, it just comes down to, do you care about other people? I think that was a great reality check and a great fundamental last point. I mean, because yes, you can't teach people how to care about other people if they don't from the start. But that is really the question that I think you're leaving us with this episode, which I'm going to re-listen to because I've learned so much talking to you already. And I think we could talk to you for another five hours, but, you know, in the interest of time, but where can our listeners find all the things and all the magic that is you? Yes. Girl, y'all can find me on the interwebs. My website is deepdivedei.com. D-E-E-P-D-I-V-E-D-E-I.com. And from there, you can learn more about my experience. You can learn more about my services. And you can also book a free consultation with me. So if you are a leader of an organization, you run your own business, whatever the situation is, and you are looking for DI consulting, you can schedule your first consultation with me 100% free. We spend 45 minutes. You don't have to have anything prepared. Just come on in as your authentic self. I'll be asking you about challenges that you're experiencing, what you want to focus on, and what would probably be the best method for you. I do trainings, of course, right? Going in, doing a workshop. I do group facilitation that can be in affinity spaces or a dialogue space with everyone all together. And I also do empathy coaching for leadership that is designed to really change the internal culture of your organization, right? Uh, it all starts with that culture. You can have the policy, but if y'all don't understand what the policy says, it's going to waste everybody's time, right? So that's one thing of what I do. You can also follow me on my Instagram, uh, Deep Dive DEI, or my other Instagram, Saya, S-Y-A-H underscore Sole, my, my ballroom uh, persona. So it's S-Y-A-H underscore S-O-L-E-I-L. That is a little bit more of other content. I do post around my social justice activism and things of like that, but I also post about ballroom. I post about Vogue and all my categories and things like that. So if you're looking to just kind of learn more about that, you can go to my page. And yeah, that's where you can find me. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news. We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here. <laughs>